Hello, and welcome to my secondary podcast series, which is part of Soul Conversations with Mia called Your Voice Matters. Each episode is a casual conversation with someone who has an important story, insight, and message to share about their experience of being on their human journey. And every story is relatable because we are all on our own journey of human experiences. I hope you enjoy and remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Welcome to another episode of Your Voice Matters, which is a subsidiary to the original podcast series, which is Soul Conversations with Mia. And as always, this is such a cool opportunity to hear voices and stories from around the world. And today we are pretty fortunate to have kind of a double whammy. We've got someone from down under, Simon Rini. And it's a man, yes, time to hear some men voices. So we're going to actually talk about something super important today, which is really interesting because the other male that I interviewed a while back um, for Your Voice Matters uh, was all about male vulnerability and his experience with it, especially um, living in a, in a, or not living, working in a very male dominated um, industry or industry. He really learned to access his vulnerability and what it opened up for him was really cool. So this is kind of piggybacking on that because we're actually going to be talking about the same thing, but from a different perspective. And that's from the perspective of uh, mental health. So Simon, welcome. Thank you for being here with us today. Um, I'm honored. Your story is incredibly important and your message is super, super important too. So let's just dump, jump right in. Let's just dump right in. <laughs> dump right in <laughs> and let's talk about let's just tell her your story the way however you want to share it yeah so, so thanks for having me on the show I'm really happy to be here and it's actually a triple whammy because it's today is I'm in Australia so today is International Men's Day as well so oh, cool. it's the 19th of November um, when we're recording this so yeah it's a it's cool to be on here talking about men's stuff on International Men's Day as well so um, my story is one of, of mental illness. It's, it's one of growing up where I grew up and understanding the world as it was by the, the guys that were around me. So my brothers and my dad and what we watched on TV and learning from a very young age that boys and men can't cry. It's the whole suck it up mantra. You know, boys are tough. Men are tough. We don't show our emotions. We don't talk about things. And so particularly when I was eight years old I developed what's called obsessive compulsive disorder uh, so I didn't understand what this was or what was happening inside me actually I didn't understand what it was until I was 28 when I finally went and got a diagnosis for it but from eight years old it started and then that evolved into depression and anxiety and even in 2020 I experienced burnout so I've had lots of different styles of mental illness in my life um, but as I said, yeah, it wasn't until 28 that I got diagnosed and I started a recovery process, which was 10 years ago this year that I've been in, in recovery on different medications and different therapy styles and approaches and just trying to work out what works best for me in terms of my health and well-being. Um, and so, yeah, I love coming on shows like this and, and through my own podcast, the Mindful Men podcast to share it because I think by sharing our stories, we can also make the world less alone as well. So for, for, the, for 20 of those years, and, and I'd say even longer than 20 years, probably for 28 years, because it's only been two years that I've been actively and openly sharing my story to the world as a, 
you know, before that it was just uh, you know, my therapists and my wife, but now it's to the world. And I think the more and more I share and the more I hear other people's stories, the more I realize is that we aren't alone in the world. Like there is help out there. There are people out there that are experiencing similar to us. Um, and it's, and the first way to, I guess, to connect with the world is just to start opening up and talking about what's happening inside. Um, because, you know, like so many people, once you start talking about things that are happening internally, you externalize it, you disempower it as well. You take some more control over your life, um, but you can also get the help that you vitally need. And for, for many blokes, particularly, that could be 20 years in the making, just like me. So, yeah, that's why I do what, what I do and why I do it. Can you start by um, sharing with us, for those of us who don't understand, um, first of all, OCD and how it showed up for you and how it mm. manifested into something else? Yeah, so I love, I love talking about OCD because it is so misunderstood. Um, a lot, it is often trivialized as well. Um, you, I'm sure many of your listeners will be out there going, oh, they might have said, oh, my OCD is killing me because I'm doing this or because of that or or you're so OCD or whatever. And, and it's kind of like a throwaway line and more of a personality quirk when they're, when they're referencing that type of thing. A common example that I've had in the workplace over 15 years was if we were like watching a PowerPoint presentation, for example, and, and someone f missed off, a, missed off a, a full stop or a comma or something like that. And they'd say, oh, my OCD is killing me because this PowerPoint presentation doesn't have a full stop at the end of the sentence. Um, that's not OCD. That's just grammar and <laughs> liking having good grammar <laughs> or perfectionism um, perfectionism and and so what ocd actually is it's it's a debilitating condition it's, it's an anxiety condition or disorder and and it starts with an obsessive thought so that's the o in ocd um and and for most people a thought might come into their mind it might be an intrusive thought it might be a bit distressing but they can kind of let it float from one side in and then one side out and and they get on with their lives, but in an OCD mind, you'll 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 latch onto that that thought, and it will go round and round and round and round in circles, causing you a huge amount of anxiety and distress, to the point where you ne then need to perform what's called a compulsive act, which is the C in OCD, or a behaviour um, to alleviate the anxiety that's caused by the the obsessive thought. And then it becomes a disorder because you're doing it like the diagnostic criteria is that it has to be, you know, quite significant, have a significant impact on your life. But it's also there's a time uh, component of it. So you have to be doing this for over an hour a day. Um, so it's not just like a, a five minute or 10 minute thing. It's actually it's taking a significant part of your you know, a time out of your day to go through this process of obsessive thought, compulsive behavior. And so. For me, it showed up when I was about eight years old um, and it took, I didn't know at the time it was OCD. As I said, I, I wasn't diagnosed until 28, but I did a, a bit of a chronological timeline back through my life to try and work out the key moments that this showed up. And it was about eight years old where I was in the schoolyard and a student said to me, Simon, if you don't use your voice for more than a minute, you're going to lose your voice forever. And for most people, they'll just like shrug that off. But the eight-year-old me thought that that was going to happen and so in order to alleviate the distress that his huge distress that came from, from this fear of losing my voice um i started a, a behavior which was humming so the humming would be like a small like mm, mm, type thing um to myself nobody ever 
has said to me that they heard me doing it when I was a kid. Um, nobody ever asked me to stop doing it. So I, I, I'm pretty sure I kept it pretty quiet. Um, but I'd be doing the humming every probably minute or so because I'd be hugely worried that I've lost my voice. So I was checking. This is the start of what's called a checking behavior in OCD. And so I started checking that my voice was there. And if I could do the hum, that was fantastic. Then I'd be like relieved. And then interestingly though, and this has just come to me just then is when we do things in compulsive acts in OCD is we have to get things just right. So um, the hum would have to be just right. I'd have to do it in a certain way that felt right. So, you know, like sometimes when you talk you might get like a little air bubble in your throat and you kind of, you, you start to say a word, but it doesn't quite come out clearly. So then you repeat it. So for me, that, that was the same for humming as well. So if, if the hum didn't sound like on pitch, like had to be a certain mm. pitch and tone and, and quietness, I would continually do it until I got that just right hum. Um, and then that lasted about a year and a half to two years. So I was doing this every day for a year and a half, two years. And eventually it stopped, which was thankfully, but OCD is, has really evolved into different types of OCD over the years. And a lot of it's around... Uh, this overwhelming fear of being unsafe and needing to feel safe and so forth. So the most profound, um, I guess, elements of my OCD happened when in my early teenage years, we, mum and dad separated and me and my youngest brother, so I've got three brothers. So me and my youngest brother, we, we left with mum. We, I remember coming home and, and finding all these garbage bags around with all of our stuff in it. And mum had packed all of our stuff. We put it in the car and off we went to, to live somebody, somewhere else. Mum had organised another rental somewhere. And so all of a sudden I became the man of the house. And I, no, mum didn't say I was the man of the house, but I um, kind of took it on myself as the oldest male in, in the household that I needed to, A, help make sure everyone was safe, but also I had this overwhelming need to feel safe as well. And so it, the OCD really ramped up in these years because what I was do is like when, say, for example, when we go to bed at nighttime, as a child, a lot of your parents or everyone's parents would go around and lock the house up before they go to bed. Everything's nice and secure. In most cases, some people still leave their doors open and, and all that type of stuff. Um, but in my household, like mum would do that, but then I would feel like I need to go around and do it myself to make sure to check that it was everything was perfectly locked and we were perfectly safe. And that would go from every door, every door that would go to the external world. So the front door, back door, sliding doors, uh, gates outside, the car was locked up properly, uh, windows were all locked up. Um, and I did this because I had this overwhelming fear that someone would come in during the nighttime and either stab us or, or kidnap us or murder us or, or things like that. Um, not that that was going to happen, but you know, every now and then you hear things on the news that make you go, "Oh, okay, that's that's a bit close to home and and stuff, so forth." And 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 so I would do this for hours and hours and hours, and and I'd do like one round, and I'd have to do it in a certain way, the just right way. But then I go to bed, and then my brain would say, "Simon, did you really check that door?" Or or even like in the process of checking that door, Simon, or that window, did you accidentally unlock it? Or did you accidentally bump it? Because I have to touch it in certain ways as well. Um, when you did that, did it accidentally open when you weren't walked away? And so 
off I'd go again. And, and this would happen you know, over hours, two to three hours every night. And, and sometimes I'd, I'd do it, you know, within the hour, which was awesome, but yeah, mostly it was, it was longer than that. And then added to that was this overwhelming fear of the house burning down. And so what I would do is I'd go around and check all the appliances. Is the stove off? Is the oven off? Is the iron off? Is there anything near those things that could potentially catch on fire and burn, you know, we'd all burn down in the, in, in the nighttime. Um, and so these were the, these ones I still have today as, as a 39 year old. Um, thankfully it's not as profound as in my teenage years. I've, I'm a little bit more settled these days and I don't live where I used to live. Not that I, where I lived was a hugely bad place to live, but um, I just feel a bit more settled as a 39 year old in a different state, in a different suburb. Um, but yeah, that's when it really came into it. And then the OCD, I guess, evolved into just generalized anxiety as well. Um, sure. Depression depression was huge at this time. And it was during my, uh, those early teenage years, I call them my darkest days because I remember going to bed one night and well, maybe a couple of nights and just wishing that I'd put my face into the pillow and, and just wishing that I would suffocate and not wake up because I was exhausted going through this process every single day. And it wasn't just at nighttime as well. It was at school. I'd be constantly checking in that my wallet and keys were secure in my bag. And through the act of checking, I'd, I'd then worry that did they fall out while I was checking? So I was checking that I was, you know, checking the checking behaviors and, wow. and I'd be constantly in this, this thought cycle of, of fear of safety and, and, and I did go to a, a, a reasonably rough school as well. I remember my first day of high school and seeing, you know, young kid coming into high school, excited, you know, new, new opportunities, new beginnings, and seeing one kid get his nose broken, another girl get her head smashed against a brick wall on the very first day. And I'm just like, wow, this is just a different world of, and I just became really fearful of people as well. And, and, and on the outside, nobody would have ever noticed like I wore a mask really well. Um, I was the happy, I would come across as this larrikin or happy-go-lucky kid, but on the inside, I was an absolute mess. And I didn't have a way to talk about it. Like I didn't know what mental health was. In the 80s and 90s, we didn't talk about this type of stuff. You know, we talked about, like if you were crying or whatever, like a guy would say, stop crying. You know, boys don't cry. You know, only girls cry or sissies cry or, or fags cry. That's what they used to say. Like gay people cry not men and I'm like and so that like became internalized so if I started to to cry I would I would hide away and and you know try to wipe the tears off as fast as I could because I didn't want to see anyone's anyone to see me cry and have a go at me or make fun of me or anything like that um, so I bottled it up and then I guess when I you know the legal age of drinking here is 18 so we you know most kids start around 16 and and so I used that as a as a coping mechanism a to to socialize and be feel like i can socialize and not be so scared of everybody but also to to numb everything to slow everything down because my brain works so fast and even today um that by drinking i was able to slow things down and and take a breath and actually feel calm and and not so anxious all the time um, but then, you know, drinking can, can lead to further depression. And so it, it continues a cycle of, of, I guess, self-medication, but then also, you know, accelerating the, the mental illness in, in us as well. Um, but yeah, eventually in 28, when I was about 28, that 
I finally, you know, dropped the courage and and through a lot of encouragement from my wife to go and, and see a doctor and, and say, look, I'm, I've been struggling for a long time. I was in a pretty bad place when I did go to the doctor, very depressed. And, and that started me on that recovery journey of, yeah, different, well, first of all, a diagnosis, um, three diagnoses. I mean, I knew I had depression to a lesser extent, anxiety, but certainly I didn't know what OCD was. And, and so learning about that and understanding what it was, was an eye opener. And, and I learned very quickly that, and it's interesting, like I learned that OCD is actually called a silent condition or a silent disorder, mm. because on average, it takes someone around 15 years from first symptom to first treatment. So for 15 years or so, on average, a lot of people with OCD try to outthink it, try to figure it out themselves, um, or just try to deal with it and think that it's just part of them, like I did. And, and yeah, and but I was over that 15 years. I was 20 years um, living well, like I this. I think that's one of the first things that, like, is a curiosity for me is, well, there's a bunch, but the one is, like, how did you actually, you're, you're going through such formative years, like from, say, 13, 14 to 17, 18, you know, you're, you're already, there's so much peer pressure already. And then you throw in this overwhelmingly challenging internal shameful you probably Mm. had shame around it and you're trying to you know maybe be a boyfriend maybe be a friend maybe be a football player maybe be a rugby player whatever it is how how did you actually manage it um a lot of internal processing it was all internalized and and yeah and i think that whole mantra of boys don't cry you know men are tough kind of wore it as a bit of a cape trying to give me the superpower to try and move through it um alcohol certainly did help but in an unhealthy way um the more the older i got the more i drank and we did it more frequently as well um but yeah it was just a lot of internal processing and you mentioned perfectionism before and perfectionism has been a huge part of my life so everything i guess that comes from the ocd is is if everything's in a perfect spot or if everything's done perfectly then i can i'm managing my ocd but what i found out in 2020 for example was i could no longer hold that bar of perfectionism up and i burnt out like it was not just the mental illness but it was a whole bunch of other things happening in my life where i could i finally started to realize like I don't have to keep being this, doing things perfectly, being this perfect person or trying to be at least, at least striving to be perfect because I'm certainly not perfect. Um, And I think from there a couple of years ago and and up until now, I'm really embracing imperfection as as a part of my recovery journey and and in terms of mindfulness and, and, and stuff like that, because there's a lot of beauty and imperfection and but for a long time i put perfect things in place to try and manage through this and get through this um and and it probably like getting through it i was, it probably came out in some of my behaviors and some of my relationships maybe i was quite i grew quite introverted in relationships i was very stuck in my ways in certain relationships but i also found that the various relationships that i was in um people were trying to put me into their boxes and i really struggled with that like i i felt like i didn't want to be somebody else's puppet i wanted to be my own person but i didn't know how to do that i didn't know how to be that person 
I didn't have enough insight young and insights only something that's come from the diagnosis at 28, but then also even now and like into my late thirties, it's only come about since I've started doing things like social work and, and able to contextualize the world in different theoretical frameworks that I go, okay, like it's like knowing that in the eight, I know just even reflecting on growing up in the eighties and nineties and what it was like compared to now that's developing in me a huge amount of insight into, you know, even like the influence of, of the media and like, you know, growing up in the eighties and nineties, movies are a great example because, you know, smartphones weren't around Facebook and all that wasn't around. And so we were watching movies like the Terminator, Die Hard, Rambo, like, and these are, are showing, showcasing real hyper-masculine men who are mm. tough, strong, um, can fight through anything, even if they've got shot or whatever, they're still fighting through it. And, and, they're, and they're, I guess, a lot of boys like me internalize that as well, in addition to all the discussions we were having around what it meant to be a boy and a man. And, and I played football and I played, I did, did track and field, I played basketball. So I was very sports focused as well. And so on the, on the sports field, you're also doing that as well. You're shutting off the emotional side of you to get through and, and push through physical endurance and pain and, and getting hit and, and all that type of stuff to stay focused and win the game ultimately. You know, the thing that jumps out the, the most right now, just in all of that information is um, how important it is to stop using OCD as a throwaway phrase, because it diminishes the seriousness of hmm. people that are actually really experiencing the trauma of OCD and just to say, oh, there's my OCD again, you know, cause I got to straighten up my paper or whatever it happens to be. So I, I actually really appreciate that because, you know, for everyone that's listening who uses that phrase as just a, you know, like a slang, it, it's really uh, does a disservice to the people that are actually struggling with it. Yeah, definitely. And it was funny yesterday, I was at a business networking thing. I was, it was the first time I went there and and the, the presenter was, was, he, he did one of those throwaway lines and literally about two minutes later, everyone was doing a 40 second introduction and say, hi, I'm Simon. I live with OCD. <laughs> so, so I was like, and it wasn't his fault. Like, and people do it. And, and it's a social thing. It's not and individuals like people are trying to attack OCD. It's just, a, it's what we've socially been doing. And cause you've seen it in the media. And so when you see things in the media and I've seen it in TV shows and, and movies, like, you know, um, when we see it like that, then we think, okay, yeah, it's okay to do until we actually meet someone with OCD who's willing to say that they live with OCD. Cause a lot of people, as, as we said before, struggle in silence for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not as common as the, you know, when we talk about mental illness, we always talk about depression. We talk about things like suicide and PTSD, sexual abuse. We talk about those things, but OCD less so, even though OCD yeah. is quite a prevalent condition in the, in, in the community as well. Um, but yeah, you're right. We do really need to challenge some of these, the language we use around mental illness, particularly around OCD, so that we can actually raise the awareness of what it actually is like to live with it. Absolutely. And I think that's what this discussion is about, amongst other things, and how it, you know, the box, it lives in the box with anxiety and depression. And I imagine suicidal thoughts too, because you, it just must be, it must be like a, a tornado, a psych, cyclical tornado that you just feel like you can't get out of. And the more you try to control it, the worse it becomes because you can't control it. And that's just, as I'm listening to you, that's just what I'm seeing in my mind is like, how is that today? Like what, what would trigger it for you today? And how do you manage it today at yeah, 39? So, 
Yeah, so it's, it still exists for me, like, as I said, not as profound. Um, stress is a big one. So when I'm feeling stressed, I feel like I'm not on top of things. Like I would, I find myself doing that kind of thing, like doing more checking behaviors um, and so forth. But it even shows up as like, you know, I'm a dad as well. So I've got a, a two little ones, um, a two and a five-year-old. So like, I'd, you know, sometimes I'd find myself automatically saying no to things. So for example, the kids might go, oh, let's go, can we go to the park today? And I'll automatically say no, not because I don't want to do it, but because in an OCD, in my, in my OCD mind, I'm constantly risk assessing and going, okay, if this, if we do this, 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 and this could potentially happen, how do I mitigate that? And I think I'm so tired of mental processing that often I just say no automatically because I just like, I just can't face, you know, going through this mental process, ticking off all these boxes to make sure that everything's perfect or to make sure that everything is just right. So then I can feel comfortable because even when I'm there, often I'm constantly risk assessing situations, who's around us, what's going on, you know, um, really a, a attentive to everything around me, the environment. And I, so I really struggled to ground myself and to be present in the moment. So often like my wife would say, Simon, you're not here with us. You're, you're somewhere else. And so, you know, thankfully I found mindfulness because that's something I'm really into with mindful men, obviously, but mindfulness is a, is a great way that I use on the go to try and ground myself and be where my feet are so I can get out of my thoughts and just be present with the family and kids. And often when I, we actually go and go to the park or we go to the beach or we do these things, I do come home feeling better. It's just the the mental lead up going into it that that just has me on automatic no, like almost automatic. The half is glass. The glass is half empty. You know, right, right. mode. Um, and yeah, so my challenge is trying to flip that switch at the moment. Yeah, and I hear that's totally attached to safety. Mm. And control, yeah. right? Controlling the environment to ensure that everything will be mm. safe and everyone will be fine, which must yeah. be exhausting. Yes, it certainly yes. is exhausting. Yeah. Um, yeah, it definitely is. But um, I guess there's ways to get through. I've been living with it so long. Um, but yeah, it is exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. So how, tell me about your wife. So how long have you guys been together? Uh, so we've been together since 2008 um and i mentioned relationships before she's the first person who ever really didn't try to fit me in their box in a box you know she she we didn't know what mental illness was when i first met her and 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 well we, we knew what mental illness was but we didn't know i had mental health conditions um and it took a few years for her to slowly encourage me encourage me encourage me hey simon something's not quite right here or you're drinking too much or you're not really showing up how i know you can show up um and but eventually yeah she encouraged me enough to go to go and get help as well but she's like a huge rock for me she's someone mm -hmm. who I lean on a lot um I try not to make her my therapist but she's often my therapist um she's very uh rational whereas I'm very hysterical half the time so she she can help keep me focused sometimes as well but she also when I when she's often saying Simon or if we're, if we're often fighting or she, you know, she's recognizing things, that's also a good prompt for me to go, hang on. Yeah, this is me. This is not just a relationship tiff or whatever. Maybe I've got to go check my meds or do some more self-care or, or go see a doctor and, or my counselor or whatever. And, 
and get checked but yeah she's a she's a huge rock for me um and i I, must be, I guess i wouldn't so, be here without her yeah i like i'm trying to envision from her perspective it must be so rewarding for her to have watched you grow into the person that you're meant to be that you can be like in your full potential of course as you're navigating all that other stuff you were nowhere near your potential because you were just so busy surviving and now mm. you can thrive at the same time that you take everything along with you because it's part of who you are it must be so amazing for her to have watched you basically spread your wings yeah yeah certainly like since we we started mindful men so mindful men's only been as a business since august and she's she has noted that I'm a lot different, you know, coming into this space and, and advocating for men's mental health compared to my old career, which was kind of a career that I fell into, not one that I actively pursued. But she also does tell me that I am hard to live with. And I recognize that it is also very hard for her and has been very hard for her to try and understand where I am on any given day or, or understand if I'm present and she does get shitty with me and that's perfectly okay. Like I, I get it. I understand. And, um, and that just acts as a prompt for me to, to look inwards and go, okay, why, what's going on? Am I, am I acting up here? What's, what's happening? But yeah, she um, certainly has noticed it since I've spread the wings into mindful men. Um, and and, and I want to know about mindful yeah. men for sure. I just, um, Oh, I had what if there is a gift in this experience that you're taking along with you on this journey, we'll call it an experience. If there's a gift, what what would you say it is? A gift would be oh, good question. It's a very good question. I think it would be something around like that it's okay to be not okay and and recognizing that in myself um was a recognition that change is possible as well um because i for, for for 30 years or for 20 years i was just doing the same old same old trying to outthink things trying to figure it out for myself and that wasn't getting me anywhere but the moment that i recognized that okay yep maybe i do have a problem maybe there's something going on and, the, and that moment when i finally started to open up um and then use that that experience to, to kind of start, you know, reflecting inwards that awakened a whole bunch of light bulb moments going, okay, this is why I am the way I am. This is what I think, but then this is also where I want to go as well. And so for the last two years, particularly after the burnout story, I was really became really laser focused on sharing men's mental health issues as, as, as a topic of discussion and doing it very actively so on podcasts i'm all over social media doing it and it's it's kind of turned my pain into my passion as well like mm. i i kind of always knew i wanted to work in this space but i didn't know how enlivening it would be to actually own it and wear it on my sleeve and go you know what yep i've got all these things i've lived with all these things but i'm here to share it so that other guys don't sit there in silence and women as well you know there's women out there experiencing the same things you know and they might hear the story and go yes you know I'm not a man, but I recognize some of those things in me and I want to go and get help now as well. And, and so that pain to passion moment, and it's really, and I love it. Like, you know, it's, it's early in the morning here, but there's, there's some days I'm up at 6am doing podcasts and, and work because I'm jumping out of bed, just so keen to share the story. Whereas mm -hmm. in my old career, 
certainly would not be in, out of bed at that time unless the kids were up or, or whatever. Like that would be the only reason I'd be out of bed before six or seven o'clock in the morning. Um, so yeah, it's, I find it's a gift because a lot of people say that mental illness doesn't define me. I'm not my mental illness and all that type of stuff. And there's, there's a lot of merit in that because it's, 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 it's trying to take power back over the mental illness. I kind of see it as a bit of a superhero power myself. And I go, you know what? Yeah, I don't like living with this type of stuff, but at the same time, if I can share my story, it can it can help so many other people in their own journeys as well. Um, and it really does give me fuel and energy and, and stuff like that. And it's helping me flip that switch, that flip that dialogue in, internally that, oh, I'm depressed or I'm anxious or I'm OCD. And I go, yeah, and, and rather than say that, I have these things and let's talk about them because so many people need to hear the story. I love those two lines. It's okay to not be okay and how to turn your pain into passion. Like I'll make sure I actually tag those lines um, in the descriptor because it's basically what the conversation is about. Yeah. And on that note, like linking it, all of this information, linking it to your son. Mm. Yeah, now you have a little guy and he yeah. gets to experience and like, t just tell us about that. Yeah. So Gussie, he's, he's five and a half now. And and often my wife will say, Simon, you two are exactly the same. And I'm like, oh, no, don't. please save him from an OCD mind. But at the same <laughs> time, I know living with it, that it is helps possible and recovery is possible as well. Um, but often when I when I talk about this, he, he his image pops into my mind. And, and I think that's because, A, I'm kind of showing up now. For, I kind of being the guy now that I wish I had when I was eight years old or even five years old, like he is, or, or 15 years old, or 20 years, 25. Um, I wish I, I was had this kind of guy in my life who could talk about this type of stuff. And so there, I'm doing it for that reason. But also his, his image pops into my brain because I know that I'm doing it for him as well. And that if he can see dad talking about mental health and openly talking about mental health, and he, and he, he knows about the podcast that I've got, and he's been on my podcast, and we, we didn't really talk a lot about mental health on there, but we touched on a few of the elements and and he, I think if if he can see this from me doing it, then he can grow up realizing that he doesn't have to bottle things up, that he can share his his pains and and struggles as well, and get help, and then you know hopefully recover from whatever he goes through, and 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 show a softness as well. Because I think when we we get vulnerable as guys, we can show our soft softer side, and that can improve relationships, whether it's with our kids or with our partners or family as well, and friends and and so forth, and. Um, yeah, I, I do a lot of this for Gus and, and I hope that one day he realizes it. He's too young to probably realize it at the moment, but mm -hmm. he's certainly a big driver for why I'm doing this as well. What would you tell your eight-year-old self? It's, I've, I've, I was asked this recently and I, the eight-year-old self in the nineties probably wouldn't have understood because mental health, I don't even think it was in the dictionary back then, to be honest. Um, and even like when I was in those early teenage years and, and, you know, having those suicidal ideations around, you know, suffocating in my pillow and all that type of stuff. Um, there was something that popped in my mind then that I actually probably became an affirmation for me for over the next few years was, as I said to myself, when I, my head was on the pillow, that Simon, the sun will always rise tomorrow. And, and I don't know where this came from, but I said it to myself and, and it, it made me bring my head off the pillow. And I think it's something about the sun was like, it's like a new beginning. It's warmth, it's growth. 
and I've kind of held on to that ever since so that when things get really bad, I'll, I'll say that to myself. Um, and that's kind of held on. I've held on to that until I was, you know, 39 now into now, but even at 28, I remember saying it to myself then. And that was a, the, the growth prospect was, I think, a driver for me to go see that doctor as well. So, um, and then, yeah, it's, it's just evolved immensely since then. But the, the eight-year-old self, I don't know, would know, don't think he would know, understand. I don't think I was mature enough in any way at eight years old to recognize anything that an adult would be saying, even myself. Um, but I think over the journey, if I think about the whole journey, I would, I would just say that it's not, it's okay to be not okay. And, and change is always possible and, and help is always out there. Um, and that it's not weak to speak up as a, as a, as a boy and a man. And it's actually a good thing to do. Um, but that's been a, that's a lifelong journey coming to that reflection as opposed to what would I tell my eight-year-old? Cause that, that eight-year-old Simon probably would be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I have to go check the windows. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So part of this series um, is about naming this chapter of life. I think we talked a bit about that before. And um, like for me, I call this decade transformation and everyone has a different term. So I'm just curious what you would call this chapter of your yeah. life that you're in right now. Yeah, I think just I think it's the I had I had two words I had the unboxing but I really hate that like it's a really bad name for a, a movie or a book or anything like that <laughs> it's more around I think just living my authentic self I really like that kind of concept it's it's just owning who I am and and sharing who I am not wearing taking off that mask and throwing it on the ground and stepping on it and and just showing up how I actually am and if, if people will ask me, like, how are you going today? I will tell them that if I'm not going well or if I'm going well, like, you know, I feel that's an, an important thing for me to do after so many decades of, of saying, yeah, I'm okay, but I wasn't okay. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really around centering on, yeah, living that authentic self or that authentic life or that genuine self, genuine life. Um, that's my focus at the moment is just being as, as authentic as possible. Yeah, I think everyone that's listening can hear that authenticity in your voice. You're just telling your story from a place of total, yep, yeah, this is exactly how it is. And this is who I am. And here mm. you go. Tell us about Mindful Men. Yeah, so Mindful Men came out of my burnout story. And, and um, just quickly, I was, I've got the mental health issues for, for so long. Uh, I was working in a high KPI environment. Um, I was studying my master's of social work part-time and we had the two kids and then we had COVID as well. So there was a lot going on during my studies and halfway through, I got to this point where I just emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally just burnt out and I couldn't do anything. I had to take four to five months off of work. And then it was a gradual graduated return when I did go back to work because I just couldn't function very well. Um, and through that process, through that recovery, I got introduced to mindfulness through my mental health social workers that I was seeing um and it started off with gratitude and trying to pick those big three pick big three things that you're grateful for and i did that for about a week and then i got bored of that because i found that gratitude picking those big three things became a bit of a just i was just regurgitating the same things every day and and then i'm like well, what's the point in this because i know these things why am i writing them down in a journal or like just didn't make sense to me 
Um, but then fast forward until the start of this year, and I was going through a really bad depressive state, probably one of the most depressed states I'd been in for quite a while. And the reason for that was I'd finished my master's last year of social work last year. Uh, I really wanted to start a business, a therapy business called Mindful Men. Um, but I was stuck in my old job. Like I didn't know I was going to do the graduated thing that a lot of people do. Like they're going to start one day a week, get some clients. Then once you've got, you filled that day, you're going to add additional day and an additional day. But I couldn't do that in the work that I was doing because it was a huge conflict of interest with the, the former workplace and then what I was trying to do with my business. And so I started seeing another psychologist as well. I was really down and I saw a different psychologist who works in acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a mindfulness-based practice. And he reintroduced me to gratitude as well, but in a different way. So instead of doing the three big things, we would break our day down into hourly chunks and then find the, the things that we think are mundane, but actually give us joy. So it could be sharing a coffee like, like I'm doing now with, with a friend um you know and or it could be just the ability to go for a walk at lunchtime because you had an hour to go for a walk or a half an hour to go for a walk and so by doing that i was able to discover more things in my life that i was grateful for that weren't the big three things that we usually put like family health house or job or whatever yeah. um but the little things that made me tick and, and filled me with joy and, and filled my cup and then from there i was able to to evolve the practice into techniques on grounding myself um in the moment um, using my five senses which was really good because i really struggle with that um i love these concepts and then i did a bit more study into it through my social work and i found that mindfulness-based practice is also about values as well and, and using our values to set goals um and then the what i found is that a lot of guys really tune into that type of stuff they're like okay how who am i as a person who am i as a dad or a bloke or a partner or whatever um, and so I grabbed those concepts, created Mindful Men to, sh to first share the stories of burnout, but also mental illness as well, but then also start sharing mindfulness techniques for guys because a lot of guys in the mental health space go, mental health discussions is not what, not for me, it's feminine, it's whatever. But mindfulness is also a bit hippie. I'm not going to engage with that. But I think from me sharing it, then the other guys are like, oh, okay, Simon's doing it, I can do it as well. Um, so I love those concepts and, and I love mindfulness because it helps me on my own therapy journey. And then now with Mindful Men, so it's a dedicated men's mental health service, um, but also for disability as well. Um, and I dedicate it to men, A, because I know we struggle to talk, but B, there's not many men's specific services around. There's a lot sure. for women. There's a lot yeah. for mums. There's a lot for kids, uh, but not so much just that this is a man space. And, you know, it's not one of those, we are men with, you know, it's not patriarchy, it's not uh, masculinity, it's just no. a space for men. Yeah, and I, don't, so, I don't hear that at all. Yeah, and and so, but interestingly, since I've been advertising it, some, some people have come on and said, oh, why just men? Men are part of the issue. I'm like, this is just a space for men <laughs> to talk because this sometimes a man yeah. wants to talk to a man. <laughs> like, and that's yeah. okay. Like same with women, like same, there's the same reason there's women's counseling services because yeah. a woman likes to feel safe with a woman or, or whatever. I, for a long time, I would speak to a woman in my counseling. My therapists were all female, except for one guy who was a little bit creepy. So I never went back to him. Um, but then I eventually found another guy that worked and, but there's not a lot of guys working in this space. And so I wanted to plug that gap and help guys to open up and talk. 
And I can do that as a social worker, as a therapist and provide mindfulness-based techniques and, and values identification and goal setting in this space. And, and the guys really look like love it. They, they tune into it. They, they appreciate it. Um, they feel safe and, and secure and they keep coming back. So that's a, that's a plus for me. And so that's what Mindful Men is. It's, it's a safe space for men to get therapy. Uh, but it's also, it's, it's the Mindful Men podcast where we share stories. It's, the, it's all the social media, which is showing me advocating, you know, for men's health and well-being and men's issues and, and stuff like that. And it, yeah, it's something that really does light me up these days. So I love it. It's amazing. And, you know, it, there doesn't have to be anything, you know, about the label. Like, it, you know, I think that's just a thing these days where, you know, it just is what it is. It's a beautiful space for men. Perfect. Mm. Nothing more, nothing less. Um, and same with the the podcast. So I'm going to be sure to link all of that stuff um, in the description when I when I um, uh, release this. Blah, 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 when I release this, uh, because I think it's so important what you're doing. It's amazing. And like, if someone in Canada we're wanting to reach out this is a virtual thing too right for you like you can do all your therapy virtually uh not not the therapy so as a social worker i'm only really working in australia as a social worker okay i am gotcha. i am looking at coaching so i am looking at doing some further study to become a coach because um, i can see some great value in some of the work that i do particularly the mindfulness-based stuff you can talk about that without applying the therapy side of it as well because a lot of it's ingrained in trauma and, and histories and stuff like that but i can take out the the tip the tools and apply them in a coaching yes. sense so I, I am looking at that in the future but at this at this stage it's just therapy in australia um okay. but i guess the podcast is there as, as a, a global platform particularly and and so, so as a social media to show guys that they're not alone that there's community out there and I can just have general chats with people in, in DMs or, or, or emails or whatever, just like, you know, you, and just create that sense of not being alone and stuff like that. I'm not going to give you any therapy unless, you know, unless you're in Australia, but you can certainly ask questions and I can give you some resources or anything like that as well. And, and when you do complete your coach training, because it's very different than therapy based, I mean, one's very um, emotion past oriented and coaching is more uh, thought behavior future based um like when you when you have a therapist who has coaching skills i mean it is a magical combination because you can um you can have conversations around the entire spectrum from past yeah. to future which is beautiful so that's amazing when when you get that out there and you can actually create your coaching on a global platform mm. it's gonna be amazing can't wait for that yeah, yeah. very exciting for the future there's so many places totally that we can get to with this as well. Yeah. Well, I absolutely appreciate you so much today. This conversation is so important. I can't wait to share it and um, maybe have a part two conversation we talked about with maybe your son. That would be so cool. Yeah, I'm sure he'd love it. He wants to be a YouTube star. So, <laughs> so this might be good practice. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again for your time today, Simon. And I look forward to connecting again in the future and um, watching what you do and what you create. And I'll be sure to share the information so that people know how to find you yeah thanks so much for having me i really enjoyed our chat and and thanks for holding space for a discussion around mental health you're welcome